Welcome to episode 9 of the Haskell Cast. I'm Rain Hendricks with my co-host Chris Forno. Our guest today is Connell Elliott. Connell has been working in functional programming for more than 25 years. He's probably best known for his work on denotational design and the invention of functional reactive programming. Connell, welcome. Thank you Thanks. so much for joining us. Thanks. Glad to be here. It's a treat. So I think uh, Chris and I are, are really interested in starting out with functional reactive programming. Okay. Yeah, and I know that uh, I know that you'd prefer to have it called denotative continuous time programming, but for the benefit of everybody who knows it as FRP, we'll we'll keep referring to it as that. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, it's it's well it's well known by that name. It's a name that I regret. It's it's actually not a name I invented. I, I don't mean to say that to shift blame, uh, but it, it it's unfortunately a name that people take. Um, they take the terms literally and think they know what it means, but it actually has a quite precise meaning that's different from most of what people call FRP today. Now, I know that people could read through your papers and watch some videos to understand where this idea came from, um, but maybe you can give a brief summary of, of maybe the if it was a eureka moment or if it was a gradual um, process. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember very clearly how it started. I was a grad student at, at Carnegie Mellon. It was probably early 1989. And um, there was uh, a fellow, Kavi Arya, uh, who was doing his doctorate, finishing his doctorate at Oxford under Richard Byrd. And he gave a talk called uh, Functional Animation, I think it was. Um, And I had actually gone to grad school to do computer graphics. And uh, when I got there, I I found that all the computer graphics people were leaving. I I hadn't asked a pretty important question before going, (laughs) whether whether there was going to be anybody left for me to work with. And so, uh, so I searched around. I tried AI, and AI I didn't have I didn't have the constitution for it. It was a little too uh, too wobbly for me. <clears throat> but then I found um, functional programming and uh, type theory and and reasoning about programs and um, uh, automated theorem proving, program transformation, all that kind of wonderful semantics based uh, syntax manipulation. Um, and so that's what I was working on. But but I still was really interested in computer graphics. So this fellow came, uh, Kavi, uh, to give a talk called Functional Animation, and I and I had to go see it. it uh, and it, it it was a very lovely thing that he that he did. And it was done in Miranda, which is a a, a precursor to Haskell. So it was a, another elegant uh, lazy functional language. And uh, so Kavi's system was um, uh, he represented animations as a, a lazy stream. So a lazy infinite stream of pictures. And it was very simple. He did all kinds of wonderful things uh, on pictures and on streams. And so that was, that was uh, how he did it. Uh, and, and I enjoyed it very much. And, and toward the end of the talk, the, the question and answer time, uh, John Reynolds, who was a professor there, a really brilliant and wonderful human being who uh, passed on recently, uh, John asked a, a, a typically John Reynolds insightful question. And he said to Kavi, he said, um, and so your model is uh, your model of animation is is uh, streams of pictures, and you can think of streams as being a function from the natural numbers. This is very penetrating. And he said, "Have you thought about functions from the real numbers?" So, uh, and then he pointed out that there was there was a somewhat awkward uh, bit of of Kavi's story, which had to do with interpolation, like temporal resampling, that kind of thing. So, if we wanted to do anything at all with with the uh, with the rate say a slow in, slow out, anything at all messing with time, uh, Kavi's model was actually quite awkward because it only had information at discrete points in time. So if we, if we wanted to do a slow in, slow out, there just wasn't the information there. And so you have to do something like uh, interpolation. And then there are all these questions. And, and it just didn't fit the model nicely. So John's suggestion was, think about your model rather than streams. Uh, think of it as functions of the natural numbers and then, and then it suggests taking a step, which is filling in all of the empty spaces and uh, talking about functions from the reals instead. And, uh, and I heard this idea, and I was tremendously excited. Um, and I went back to my office, and I wrote it down, and I promised myself not to think about it. <clears throat> because if I did, I would never finish my doctorate. My, my doctor had nothing to do with this. I was doing type theory. I was doing higher-order unification on dependent types. But uh, what I had just heard John say was much more interesting than anything that I could think of doing for my uh, finishing my dissertation. <laughs> and John himself actually was quite helpful to get me to really finish my dissertation. 
So, so this was 1989, and then uh, fortunately I did finish my dissertation. Uh, I managed to resist thinking about this wonderful idea, and, uh, and then uh, I went on to a, a fairly short-term job uh, a few months at a research lab, and then I went to Sun Microsystems and, and got to join uh, uh, the beginning of a computer graphics group, graphics research group. And there we were tasked to come up with like the next cool approach to doing interactive 3D graphics after something called FIGS, which was kind of typically horrific um, design that one sees in uh, computer graphics. I'm sorry, but that's, that's how it is. Uh, so, so I was still interested in computer graphics, and now I had all this type theory and functional programming background, and I thought, what the heck? Let, let's uh, start thinking about uh, interactive 3D graphics from the point of view of functional programming and types. And, uh, and there I, I came up with a, a nice algebra of uh, 3D and 2D and uh, colors and points and vectors and surfaces and imagery and all this kind of stuff. And it was an algebra. It was a nice typed algebra. Uh, and, and then I wanted to put time into it, time and interactivity. And, and so I came up with the beginning of functional reactive programming then. That would have been around 1991 or two. Uh, and it was a system called TBAG. If you look that up on my publications page, you'll find it. Uh, it stood for time, behavior, and geometry. Uh, and, and at the time, it was... Uh, so I had, I had continuous time. Continuous time is one of the two kind of founding uh, points. And, and that, would, that was John Reynolds' suggestion uh, from that uh, his astute observation uh, at Covey's talk. And so I brought that in because it just felt right. Um, the, the discrete time has always felt to me like a, a machine artifact. It's a technological artifact. Uh, and I want to write my programs not about machines. Occasionally I write programs about machines, but mostly I use machines to write programs that are about ideas. And, uh, and, and time has always, I've related to it as continuous, not discrete, um, just as space, as, as I relate to it as continuous, not discrete. So, uh, so, so I, I had this system that used, um, it, it wasn't the modern version of functional reactive programming. Uh, the reactivity in it was somewhat imperative, but in a really cool high-level sense, it was, these, uh, con- it was a constraint-based system. So you certain retract constraints, and the constraints were on functions of continuous time, functions from continuous time to 3D geometry and so on. So uh, these ideas are, are applicable outside of Haskell, but I'm, I think we're interested in knowing where Haskell kind of fits into this. Yeah, 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 you bet. Well, let's see. Um, so I think I'll just pick up on this story and, and, and continue uh, uh, aiming at Haskell. Uh, so my first implementation of TBAG was in Common Lisp. Um, I, had, I had done a lot of Lisp programming and, and ML, and ML at the time was my favorite language. Um, and uh, at one point, just in order to, to figure out how to, how to implement one of the tricky things in the compiler, which was compiling a bunch of pattern matches into a single thing that matched them all at once, um, I, I, I came up with something that was, had types that were so tricky that I had to write it in ML and not in, uh, not in common list. I knew I'd get it wrong in common list, but I couldn't get it wrong in ML. Um, I will do a little digression here. The funny thing was I implemented ML and it wouldn't type check. It needed polymorphic recursion. And I had been exposed to this in, in grad school uh, and, and knew that, that ML didn't have polymorphic recursion and, and, and that it was actually quite a tricky thing uh, to, to do type inference with polymorphic recursion. Uh, and so I, I put out a probe on the ML mailing list and somebody, I think it was Chris Wadsworth, wrote back and said, this is amazing because I described my application, which, which is roughly tries. I didn't know what they were at the time, but it's roughly tries. Uh, and Chris said, this is, this is amazing. Robin Milner had wanted to do exactly the same thing for exactly the same reason, compiling a bunch of pattern matches into a single efficient uh, implementation. Um, and he, he came up with the same idea, and it didn't type check in ML. And Robin's solution, Robin Milner, who you know, I esteem extremely highly, Robin Milner's solution was to add a flag to the compiler to turn off the type checker. And simultaneously very elegant and terribly disappointingly inelegant at the same time. So uh, I just accepted that as such. But much later, I was quite pleased to discover that uh, Haskell had polymorphic recursion. So so I worked in ML for a while and and Common Lisp and Scheme and did various versions of of, uh, predecessors of functional reactive programming. And then I went to Microsoft Research uh, to, to, actually to, to design the software interface for a new 3D graphics hardware architecture, which is very cool. Um, and that's where I added the, the last bit of 
the declarative reactivity part. I still really wanted to know how that uh, how one could express events and reactions to events in a lovely compositional way without any notion of, of mutation. So um, so I was lucky enough to, to stumble onto Haskell uh, about at that point because I was still working in ML and Lisp and that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I found there was this lazy language and it had some nice uh, type system features. And I downloaded it. I found it and downloaded it, uh, it being Hugs, Mark Jones's. Uh, uh, Haskell implementation, Haskell-like uh, implementation. Uh, I downloaded it and and ran it, and it popped up some DOS box on my Windows machine, and and typing into that, and I thought I must certainly have the wrong thing, and I deleted it. But it turned out that actually was the state of the art at the time, so I uh, reinstalled it, and and uh, that's been my main main vehicle ever since. This would have been about 1994, 95. Uh, so Has- Haskell was a terrific fit. It, it was a really much better fit than than a ML because I certainly didn't want side effects um, and I didn't like the call by value. I didn't like the, the strictness of ML. Uh, so non-strictness, or people often call it laziness, but it's really non-strictness, uh, is super useful for manipulating large, interesting things, particularly infinite things. Uh, and what I was dealing with were more infinite than the kind of infinite things we deal with in Haskell, mainly because mine don't have just infinitely infinitely much data, not just countably, but uncountably much information because they're functions of continuous time, not discrete time. So Haskell was really just kind of a a perfect fit for me, and I was lucky that I stumbled onto it when I did. It's interesting that the first uh, roadblock in ML was the type system and not the strictness. I would have thought that you would have immediately gravitated towards a a non-strict language. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it was, in a sense, just dumb luck because I hadn't yet done the uh, declarative reactivity. Mm-hmm. And and the fact that I was using function, um, uh, what is it, uh, flows, let's call it, over continuous rather than discrete time meant I couldn't use a data type like streams anyway. I had to use something that was dense. Uh, and, the, and the easiest to think of data type that was dense is simply functions. And so I was manipulating functions and, and, and there was sort of a variety of, uh, of um, uh, nuances there. But but manipulating functions, uh, you know, lambda is lazy in, the, in that sense. You, 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 can, you can express a function and pass it around, and it doesn't get evaluated fully. In other words, it doesn't get, it, 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 its kind of table doesn't get filled in. So, so it's a funny thing about functional programming, particularly lazy functional programming, that, that functions are a very important aspect of it, but they behave differently from the other data types, particularly in, in Haskell. So the other data types memoize, and functions don't by default. There are good practical reasons for making that choice. It's just, it's just a, a, a funny point. So when I, uh, oh yeah, so coming back to the story, uh, when I revisited uh, reactivity and wanted to express it in a, in a really functional way, then I needed laziness. I hadn't really needed it up to that point. So I think it was kind of dumb luck that I was getting away with, without it as, uh, as long as I did, and then I had it just in time. So it occurs to me that uh, some people may have uh, an okay idea of what, functional reactive programming um, is. But I know you recently reformulated it in, in modern terms with um, denotational semantics, and you've also been working on some uh, implementation efficiencies. So is there a concise explanation of, of, of how you want people to think of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, I want to point out, so, so what's now called functional reactive programming? It's been called that for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. Uh, maybe a little less. Um, it was always founded on denotational semantics. So there, there, there were two starting points um, that are complementary to each other. One, and one of them was this idea of, uh, of continuous flows, as flows over continuous time rather than discrete. Um, and, and then, so that's a kind of topical or domain specific, uh, that, that's the idea of what it is that we're talking about and then how we're talking about it, uh, what sort of... Um, a framework orientation is within the context of denotational semantics, and that was just something I learned in high, in uh, grad school, not high school. I learned in grad school that that really fit me well, uh, and and I use it all the time. It, it, it's it's the central uh, perspective that I use for designing software. Um, so from the beginning, I had in, I, I was asking denotative questions. So the first question that, that I applied to anything I work on, in particular I did for functional reactive programming back in the early 90s, is to say, well, what is it? So what, is, what are these things 
that this uh, library is to express. So one can approach a library, design and implementation, to say, well, I've got a bunch of functionality I want to give access to, right? A bunch of operational machinery, and I want to give somebody access to it. Uh, that's, you know, generous of me, right? So I've done this implementation. I want to share the results. Um, but but it, it's a real operational kind of notion. It's, it's like I want to let somebody drive my car or, or, or use my stapler or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm sharing these mechanisms. Um, but that's not, the, that, that's not where I like to start um, because it ignores, it ignores something really fundamental, which is what is it that I want to talk about? What are these things that, uh, of, that the implementation is referring to or manipulating? Another way to ask the question is, uh, I can say, is my implementation correct? Say, is it efficient? I can say, is it correct? But I can't answer the question of correctness without, knowing what, uh, without having a specification. So most programmers, I think, go about programming uh, by working on answers when they don't understand the question. And for me, uh, a way to formulate a question is to look at uh, denotation. And so for func functional reactive programming, I was really interested in behavior. I was really interested in things that evolve over time uh, and interact. And so, uh, so I thought about what different models uh, what, what does that mean? Something that, that evolves over time, something that is over time. What does that mean? And I just say, just, that, that's my intuition. That's great. Now I want to make that more precise. I want to make that more precise until it is mathematical. And then I want it to be as simple as possible. So when I think about what is something that is over time, well, I think it's, it's for every time there is a value. So it's a mapping from time to values, or it's a function. And for me, time is continuous, and so it's a function from the reals. So that, that's the denotational model, and that was from the beginning. Yeah, I, I think we had, we had planned to kind of put off getting into denotational design and semantics till uh, a little bit later. I know that this is probably, you, you, you really want to get into the really deeper, more fundamental insights you've got, but uh, maybe we need to lead people into those. Uh, sure, a yeah, that sounds, yeah, that sounds good, yeah. <laughs> so, so let's see. Um, so I, I would say behavior. So it's, for me, it's always about behavior. And, and, and when people look at like the API and they talk about the concepts, uh, they'll notice that there, there are a couple of things. One I called behaviors and the other called events. Um, and, and to my great sadness, most of what I see nowadays called functional reactive programming concentrates on events and often discards behavior altogether or keeps behavior but at, at a at a sort of small fraction, a tiny fraction of, of what it was by making it discrete. So uh, behavior is just something that is, that is uh, changing with time, something that has value with time. It doesn't have to be changing. It could be constant. It just means that it is over time. And events are uh, sort of punctuation in the time stream. And, the, and, and uh, events are things like you think of events, like a collision or a key press or something like that. Yeah, perhaps perhaps that's uh, why it, it it happens so often. Um, if if people are trying to reason about this in terms of graphics or games or interactive systems, uh, events are very easy to think about, but behavior is sort of an abstract uh, notion, except for the concrete examples of of animation, which are which are easy to grasp but hard to see the applications of. Um, are, were there any concrete uh, notions that you can tie to behavior to? To help yeah, sure. Well, I, I want to point out that uh, I was working in computer graphics when this all started, and so uh, so so the the examples that you mentioned that are easy to think of animation are exactly what the examples that I was working with. Um, but even if you take like a um, if you take your your mouse, so a mouse has buttons on it, and and it has a little wheel or a camera or whatever that that picks up motion. So for me, those those two uh, uh, give examples. So a button click is uh, is uh, conceptually discrete; uh, it can only click discreetly often, but motion is continuous. So I, I move the mouse through space. Okay. Now you might be surprised, and you think, "No, no, no! I've written a bunch of C or Java or what have you programs, and those programs take mouse motion events." So that's something that I, I noticed early on. I think that's just a bug. It's just a, it's a mistake. It's a kind of universally applied mistake in, in, in how GUIs uh, libraries are structured, that, that they, they treat motion as if it were discrete rather than uh, continuous. They treat it like it's a button-clicky kind of thing. And there are, there are practical implications. There are hacks in, I'm guessing, all Windows systems. Um, if you look at how events are treated, including the motion event in scare quotes, 
Um, and there's a funny sort of difference, which is that um, motion events are discarded, right? The window system will, deli- will not deliver every motion event, but it will deliver every mouse click event. And the reason for that is, well, there are two kinds of reasons. One's practical, which, which is that the application uh, could and likely would get flooded by all the mouse motion events that the hardware can produce, especially now, very high res, uh, spatially and temporally uh, motion. And so, so the window system doesn't want to overwhelm uh, the application. But that, that's just a kind of, that reason is why it would be problematic to, to give all of the physical uh, event uh, occurrences. W- uh, why is it okay to throw them away? And the answer is because they're not events. They're not events in the first place. They're partial information about a behavior. So the, the hardware is going to generate probably quite a rapid stream of these so-called events. But there's nothing special about those particular events. See, because the mouse moved in between them, right? So you, you may get, I don't know, a thousand a second, but the mouse moved a whole lot in between all of those. So they already got thrown away by the hardware. Then there's this hardware to uh, window system layer that throws away more of them, and, and eventually a few of them are delivered to the application. But the reason that it's okay to throw them away is that they were arbitrary in the first place, and that what we really want is a continuous flow. And that continuous flow can be represented in, uh, inaccurately and precisely by a, a bunch of samples. But it can be represented more precisely by things like uh, cubic splines or something like that, which would properly show that they are, in fact, continuous and not discrete. So that, that, that's a very mundane example, just at the kind of hardware uh, you know, input device level. Interesting. That, that kind of uh, leads into the next question I wanted to ask you about this. And, that, and it's about implementational efficiency. So with, uh, with mouse movement, that's easy to conceptualize, but now consider a multiplayer game with third-party objects moving through an atmosphere and, and so on. Uh, yeah. It gets interesting. Yeah, it gets interesting. Absolutely, yeah. So, so this is a great example of... Um, there's something that I keep hearing over and over, recently even, uh, which is completely wrong. Um, it's sort of, you know, 180 degrees or pi radians wrong, uh, which is the idea that, um, that temporally discrete systems are efficient and continuous systems are inefficient. And so, you know, any good sort of practical-minded programmer is going to want to do discrete instead of, uh, of continuous. But exactly the opposite is true. I'll give an example of this and I'll explain why. So this was in about the year 1999. I was at uh, Microsoft Research um, and I had a just, you know, at the time, whatever, plain old uh, Windows machine, uh, maybe a little bit ahead of the consumer curve, but not much. Uh, and, and I had an implementation of, of um, my system called Fran, uh, which was a 2D, 3D animation interaction kind of thing uh, uh, that was one, one of the first functional record programming systems. Uh, and it ran at several hundred frames a second in hugs, which was interpreted, bytecode interpreted. Right with a garbage collector, not a sophisticated garbage collector. This is Mark Jones's small C implementation. So how was I able to get such high performance out of you know a 1999 machine in, a, in an interpreted implementation of Haskell with a fairly mundane garbage collector? And and the answer is because my model was used continuous time. Now that's not enough. That, that, that's not the full answer, but it was necessary. So um, so what I did was I ran my system at two rates. One was about 10 frames a second, which is not fast enough for graphics. But about 10 frames a second, I sampled the complete model, garbage collector ran, whatever. Um, and I got sample points. And then at higher than video refresh rate, even like kind of absurdly over the top, higher than re- video refresh rate, um, I did an interpolation. So, so my system was continuous. Everything was continuous. I could do sampling. I could do linear, cubic, quadratic, whatever, interpolation. Uh, in an engine that ran in, it was written in C, used DirectX at the time. It was this kind of a very fast blitting and did some 3D, not much at the time. Now it does much more. Um, and so I, I, I ex- crucially exploited the fact that, that I had a, a continuous representation. So the, the specification was continuous. My output is going to be continuous also. There's nothing we can do about that, right? Continu- like waves come out waves, photons, whatever, some kind of funny continuous hybrid uh, thing. Um, But the fact that I had a continuous specification allowed me to realize that any set of discrete samples is not the spec anyway. 
I have a, a description of the perfect spec. I have some implementation, whether it uses uh, piecewise cubic or piecewise constant, which is what people who do discrete systems uh, get. And I can talk about exactly the difference between the ideal and, and the realized. And once we have that difference that we can talk about it precisely, first of all, we have to know what the spec is. Then we look at what we can accomplish through our, uh, through our machinery, which although our machinery is temporally continuous, people also say computers are discrete. They're not. Of course they're not, because they're electronic, right? Um, but, they, but they implement a, a temporally discrete abstraction, right? digital computation. So whatever we do, we're not going to get the right thing because the right thing is, is some you know, arbitrarily shaped curve uh, that, that, that you know, if we implement it by piecewise constant, if we approximate it, or by piecewise cubic, we're still going to get it wrong. But if we have the specification, we can know how wrong we get it, and we can do load balancing. We can decide, well, this thing has a very small derivative, so I'm, so I'm going to sample it very rarely, and I can use piecewise constant, or as a very small second derivative, and I can sample it and do uh, piecewise linear and get very small errors. But I have to have a continuous specification in the first place so that I can have all of these choices and make some sort of informed decision. All of this is, is very interesting and very elegant, until it seems, until you introduce events. So how do they work in, especially um, in uh, your paper on push-pull optimizations? Uh, you know, thinking you, you kind of they, they are thought of as two separate things in terms of implementation, at least for efficiency. Yeah, um, that paper. So it was, I think it's called push-pull function reactive programming from God. What year was that? Twelve or something? I don't quite remember. Two thousand nine. Oh, was it nine? Oh yeah, that was two thousand nine. Oh yeah. Yeah. So so that paper did a few things. Um, for one thing, as uh, uh, as already mentioned, it, 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 in that paper I modernized the vocabulary of uh, FRP um, because when I first when I first designed it, I didn't uh, I wasn't using monoids and functors and applicatives. So we didn't even have applicatives at the time, um, and, and so I wanted to put it in a in a more modern uh, setting. Um, the, there are, variety, there are a few reasons for doing that, and I, and I want to get back to this. And th th this touches on denotational design, of which functional reactive programming was, was uh, my first application, uh, and it took me quite a long time to realize what I was doing. So in, the, so in that push-pull paper, I, I modernized the, the language to give it kind of a standard al algebraic, and then I, I uh, give a denotational semantics, which I had done back in the original, in the early 90s, original form. That's where it came from, was from the semantics. But now I gave a, a, a denotational semantics that was particularly elegant given the phrasing of the API in terms of standard uh, algebraic interfaces. Uh, oh, and then, of course, I talk about how to implement it efficiently with push and pull. So, so in fact, the idea goes back to how I implemented TBAG, which, which was a kind of... So uh, the first FRP system was called ActiveVRML, ActiveVRML. I did that in around 1992 or three, something like that. Um, uh, it, it was a proposal for a, a successor to VRML, which was a thing at the time. I don't, I don't ever hear people talk about it, and that's fine. Um, uh, but it was the first, it was the first one that had continuous time and uh, and declarative reactivity for such a system. But before that was something called TBAG that I did at Sun, uh, and TBAG used a constraint engine, so it solved multi-way constraints over functions of time. So it had non-reactive functions of time. And then there were constraints among them. And the constraints could be changed. That was the imperative high-level thing, the assertion and retraction of constraints. And, and, and so when the constraint solver would tweak, 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 and incrementally uh, rejigger this network of continuous uh, functions of continuous time. Uh, and, and so the push-pull paper really kind of goes back to that, um, although at the time I, don't, I think I'd sort of forgotten uh, the teabag worked that way. Uh, and the idea of the push-pull paper is, uh, well, there are a bunch of ideas, but one of the key ideas is, is that the FRP algebra, so, so functional reactive uh, behaviors, uh, can be looked at as undergoing phases of non, uh, uh, let's see, punctuated phases of non-reactive behaviors. So in other words, if you lay out a reactive behavior, so just you can think of this intuitively. You don't think about this in terms of you know, what functional reactive programming in your semantics or API or anything. Just think about if you've got things that are, are evolving in time, and then there are events that happen like collisions uh, or you know, a user intervention, a, a mouse click or something like that, then, then, a, then a behavior is going to change course. So it's going to bounce, for instance. So those events, 
So it's the nature of behaviors that they evolve over continuous time. It's the nature of events that they punctuate at discrete times. So that means that if you look at, if you lay out all of the events, right, there are only going to be discreetly many, and there are intervals between consecutive events. And, and during those intervals, no event happens by construction, right? That was just how I identified them. And so you can think of reactive behavior as a sequence of phases of non-reactive behavior punctuated by events. Okay? So the push-pull paper formalized that and said, here's this nice algebra that, that's arbitrarily compositional. It's just reactive behaviors. And, and, and then they have this functor and applicative and monoid and all this sort of stuff. And, and you can look at each of those constructions, each of those operations, and say, well, if we represented the behavior as a, as a sequence of uh, event-punctuated non-reactive behaviors, then how, how would each of those building blocks take such sequences and give such sequences? So I want the user to think of events or just don't even think about them. They're not, events are not part of the semantic model of behaviors. A behavior is just a function from time. Events are part of the building blocks. Yeah, okay, we throw in some, and, and then we get a, a function of time. But it's not like you could look at it and see the events. So the idea of the push-pull paper is take, take this general compositional notion of reactive behaviors and give a representation as a sequence of simple behavior, simple meaning non-reactive. And, so you, and, could and think, you could think then of, for instance, a, a mouse click. The event of a mouse click takes a behavior that would be a constant off and then switches it to a behavior that's on and then switches it back off after the button is pressed or something like that. So what you're, what you're really, you're still able to talk about the behavior, uh, the continuous behavior of the system and the events just switch between them. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when, and, and when, when you, you've kind of built that behavior, that reactive behavior, what you get is one function of time, which at any time is on or off. And, and it's important to me that you cannot look in a behavior and say, like, when does it change? Change in the sense of events. Because in order to answer that question, one would need a more complex semantic model. Now, many or most FR, so-called FRP systems I see out there do have some notion of when does something change. And every one of those uh, uh, breaks the semantic model. It's like, it's like you have arithmetic, right? So FRP is arithmetic for time-varying quantities of all sorts of types. Arithmetic, I just mean some algebra, some, some set of operators that have nice laws, nice properties. So that's what FRP is. And imagine if, if you thought of arithmetic as being about, um, about what, uh, compositional structure or about, or, or about the expression right, that you evaluated to get the... Uh, so if you add three and four, can you tell the difference between that and what you get by adding two and five? So it's very important to the laws of arithmetic that you cannot tell the difference. If you could tell the difference, then what you would have would not be a type of numbers, which are nice such operations. It would be something more like a type of trees or something like that. And there would be no interesting equational properties. And you'd have something fairly complicated. Then you'd have to talk your API instead of talking about, you wouldn't be doing math, you'd be doing data structure manipulation. So for instance, every time you hear somebody talk about FRP in terms of uh, graphs or propagation or something like that, they're missing the point entirely because they're talking about some sort of operational mechanistic model, not about what it means. And what I see happen over and over is not only do, do people generate a complex model, but they don't know it's complex because they haven't looked at it precisely, and they thwart most attempts to do non-trivial optimization because they've exposed too much information. So I want, I want to make it as abstract and useful as possible so that it's simple for somebody to think about and I can do uh, like radically uh, different sorts of optimization experiments. You mentioned that uh, some uh, systems that call themselves reactive that, that do present the, this notion of an event at happening at a discrete time that you can detect or respond to that it poses denotational problems. Ah, no, no. Th thanks. thanks for asking. Uh, I think I wasn't clear. Um, uh, no, it's fine to have a, a notion of events and then talk about exactly when the events happen. It's just that, it's just that events, so uh, events as FRP are, are one of the ways uh, to help, they're one of the tools for building interesting behaviors. So once you, you make a reactive behavior, use an event to build up a reactive behavior, do this until, you know, be this until that, 
for instance, then it's no longer possible to look at the thing and say, when does, when, what are the punctuations? What are the events? And that's important because, because it keeps the model simple. This is, uh, I think, a really great time, speaking of abstract and precise thinking, to leave these sort of thoughts wandering in people's minds and get, get on to denotational design and semantics. Yay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so All right. Let me, let me maybe talk first about something from the push-pull uh, talk and paper. Uh, a bit of a, a denotational gotcha there that maybe we could, we could update, peop- update. So the events... Events have uh, they require a lazy notion of time. Yes, you need to be able to ask if one of three events occurred first without first saying if I have events A, B, and C, which one was first? If I have to wait for the evaluation of A and B, I may never get to C. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and uh, exactly. So the um, so events are a data type. So parameter data type event of A, and it refers to a a, a sort of stream of timed uh, values of type A, which you can think of as being the occurrences of the the event. And one of the operations on events is the monoidal operation, is combining two events. And what it means is to interleave them. So interleave them in time order. So it's not like you take the first of each and the second of each and the third of each. It's in time order. Um, And of course, it's possible they'll have uh, coinciding occurrences, and so it's left biased just to, to have precise semantics. Um, and so it leads to a tricky question, which is, uh, so, so, so then, then in the semantics of behaviors, so I want to know what events mean because I know how to know what behaviors that react to events mean. So in the semantics of, of a reactive behavior, a behavior that is like one phase, and then when an event happens, that generates another behavior, we switch to that, uh, to, to the new behavior. And then if it occurs again, we switch to that behavior uh, in flight. Um, and so the, so the semantics of that operation, which I called switcher, I think, maybe in, in that push-pull paper. Uh, it needs to know what is the next occurrence, or the first occurrence, uh, of an event. And if that event is a merge, the monoidal combination of two events, then the question becomes, uh, which of these two happens first? And at what time and with what value? And the, and the interesting thing is we also have to know, we can't just wait um, until we actually know when it happens, because the question really is, given at a time t, is that time t before or at the event occurrence? That's one choice. Or is it after the event occurrence? That's the other choice. If the time t is before or at the event occurrence, then we use the old behavior. If it's after, we use the new behavior that the event generates. <clears throat> and so, so the funny thing is we have to be able to answer the question, uh, hey, event occurrence, is your time uh, less than or equal to, a given, to this given time t? And that event has to be able to answer the question, even though it doesn't know what the actual time of the first occurrence is. Because the first occurrence might be next year, and I want to know now that the first occurrence um, is not in the next millisecond. I want to know within a millisecond that it's not in the next millisecond. So it's a bit of a subtlety. The semantics is very simple in terms of time, but the implementation is quite tricky because we need to use a lazy notion of time, just as you said, Rain. And underneath the hood, it actually uses uh, a concurrency. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I think what you're talking about is is this thing I called unamb. Un- unambiguous choice, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So unamb was um, was a solution uh, I came up with. I paced for days. I live out in the woods, and uh, nobody minds if I pace and pace and, and talk to myself. And I paced for days trying to solve this problem in, a, in an elegant, functional way. So that so I was I was uh, grappling with this puzzle. I have to be able to get an answer to the question. Uh, hey, occurrence, are, is your time uh, at or before uh, a time that I have in mind or not? And it has to be able to answer me without knowing actually what it, what it is. And, uh, and I wrestled and wrestled with this question, and I came up with this angle, which I think was really inspired by some wonderful work uh, by Warren Burton in the 80s. Uh, Warren Burton did this lovely work, um, he and a grad student named Ken Jackson, and it was called uh, Improving Values. And then uh, they kind of one upped it to Improving Intervals. And, and it tackles this sort of question, which is, um, I want to do some manipulation. So their setting it had a lot to do with uh, doing um, uh, max, uh, maximizing, optimizing certain queries. Or, so they're looking at a lot of information, doing some combinatorial stuff, and 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 being able to ask, being able to look at a lower bounds, upper bounds, that kind of thing on, on values as they're searching through a search space. So 
search space. We're looking for the smallest value that satisfies some property, doing all this search. Um, and, and we'd like to be able to get bounds, a lower bound, an upper bound, that sort of thing, as we're exploring multiple strategies. So I think I, had, I was very inspired by this work in grad school. And it came up while I was uh, working on this problem of, of how to give uh, an efficient implementation that respects the, um, the simple, precise semantics of FRP. And, and then I came up with this angle of, of using, um, so that was the idea, but I came up with this angle of, of using something I called UNAMB. Um, UNAMB is, uh, you may or may not have heard of, of uh, John McCarthy's AMB operator. So, so the AMB operator uh, is one that you, uh, uh, AMB takes two arguments and it gives you back one of them. And it doesn't tell you which one. So AMB stands for um, ambiguous, I think. Okay, so AMB does not have a simple semantics within uh, pure functional programming or, or, or math it, because it's non-deterministic. So the semantics of AMB and any language with AMB has to be fairly complex. It has to yield not a single value but a set of values and then every operation, talk, you, know, you have to talk about how the sets interact and that sort of thing. So it's non-deterministic. So what I came up with was something that I called UNAMB. And UNAMB is, um, it sounds more highfalutin than it is, UNAMB is exactly AMB except only used in the situation where it's unambiguous. So the, the trick was that, it, that I had two different ways of solving this problem, of finding out, uh, 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 eventually came down to which event happens first without being able to know the time of either one of them. And I had two techniques for solving this problem. And, and one of those two techniques uh, would work, but there's no way for me to know which one. Okay? One technique would work and the other would not yield information at all. So one technique would give the right answer, the other would hang, right? It would, it would sit there uh, either for a long time or indefinitely. And so, so the trick was uh, that I would try both of these techniques and then, and then uh, yield the answer of whichever one yielded the answer first. Now that sounds like AMB, except that I know that these two techniques uh, are necessarily compatible. They can't contradict each other. So I don't mean to say they give the same answer. What I mean to say is that they, uh, they don't have to agree, but they can't disagree. So if one, of them, if one of them speaks up, the other one has to say the same thing or say nothing at all. And then more generally, unamb is a special case of another construct, which is called the least upper bound, or lub. And lub is at the heart of the semantics of all programming languages. So in the late 60s, I think it was, early 70s, Chris Strachey invented something called denotational semantics. And Dana Scott uh, joined him and, and, and figured out the mathematical model under it. And that model, uh, at the heart of it, is something uh, is, is, is information ordering, so partial ordering on information. And that information ordering is, well, at the time it was a lattice. Now we talk about complete partial orders. But it has a lub operation, at least upper bound. And so it, it's a bit of a weird thing to throw into uh, functional programming, this lub operation of which unamb is a special case but actually isn't because everything that we do has lub at the heart of it. It's just what I did was to make lub be uh, something you can program with. And as an aside, I think lub is, is my strong hunch is that it's at least as important as non-strictness in uh, being able to write modular uh, functional programs. I think it, it's a, it's a uh, tremendously underexplored area, what one can do with, uh, with lub in the programming model. I have a few blog posts about it. I've, I've seen that Lattices show up in surprising places. They show up in concurrency. Uh, they show up in FRP, so futures form a lattice. Time forms a lattice, right? So you have a minimum bound and upper and a maximum bound on time values, things like that. Yeah, like anything that that has an, a lower bound or an upper bound or is an interval or whatever, because it represents a set, and sets form a lattice with union and intersection. So it, it seems like a, a unifying concept that maybe. Part of understanding denotational semantics is getting to all the way to the bottom of, of the you know the rabbit hole and realizing that it starts with lattices, forming a lattice structure of computations, and then what what do you build off of that? Yeah, yeah, and um, I'm really torn uh, at this point in the conversation because uh, I want I want people to get out there and, and explore denotational semantics. Um, to me, it's the most, it's by far the most powerful, potent, f uh, focusing tool for library design. It wasn't invented for library design. It was, in, it was invented for, for explaining languages. 
Um, but I use it for designing languages and really for designing libraries, for designing ways of, of speaking about things. So, and I want to point out denotational semantics has two sort of halves. It's also called the uh, Scott Strachey or Strachey Scott semantics, uh, uh, named after its two inventors. Um, but, but those two names represent two very different facets uh, of, of semantics. And one is Chris Strachey's, which is, which is the, the discipline of how to talk about the meanings of languages. And it's a very simple idea. Um, and, and the other is Dana Scott's contribution, which is domain theory. And it's very deep. And what I want to point out, what I want to emphasize, uh, is, is that the easy part, the, the stretchy part, is by far the most useful part. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah, there, are, there are two concepts or two uses of denotational semantics that I've always seen. And I think they're, they're exactly that. One is... How do I specify the type for a program that I want to build or a function I want to write? And the other is, how do I explain the behavior of fix in Haskell? You know, both of these involve denotational semantics, but I think it's exactly what you mentioned, that they involve different aspects of denotational semantics. Yeah, yeah. So this notion of fix. So there was this question. It was very interesting. I, I, um, this is something I learned in grad school. It really stuck with me. So so modern functional programming is, is based... Um, on the lambda calculus, on Church's lambda calculus. So Turing had his model of computation, Turing machines. It's very, it's very state-ish, it's very sequential. Uh, and then there was Church's model, which is quite different. Um, it's this sort of uh, um, expressions and reduction rules and so on. And, and the lambda calculus has you know, become the foundation of functional languages, but uh, it's also, in a different sense, the foundation of, of all languages in that... Uh, in, in this sense, that Chris Strachey came up with this way, a systematic way of translating from, an R, from a programming language of your choice into the Lambda calculus. Now, he did that because he wanted to understand some, uh, some of the concepts that we were starting to put in programming languages like GoTo <laughs> and Escape and uh, loops with breaks and things like that. Um, and, and, and so he got to look at things like continuations and that sort of thing. I guess maybe the question is, we know that there's an equivalence between Turing's representation and Church's representation, but how do you take some imperative program and treat it functionally, treat it as with Church's model? Uh, so Strachey answered this question very completely and elegantly, um, but it's not something that I recommend as a, as a useful answer. So what Strachey did was, was he, he said, here's how you can understand what this language means, language of your choice. Uh, translate into lambda calculus, and he did that in a systematic way, recursively over the abstract syntax. So a denotational semantics is just—I'm going to talk about the straight two part—is just uh, you take your language, you you express it as as its abstract syntax. Okay, so a tree form, and you can uh, in Haskell or ML that would be a, an algebraic data type, a recursive algebraic data type, and then you map from that data type to this language of functions. And, and that mapping is recursive. It's, it's compositional, which means that the meaning of an expression is, 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 is defined in terms of the meanings of its sub-expressions. Uh, so if you do that to an imperative language, you can say, I've just given the meaning of the language. Or you can say, I've just given a systematic way to translate from your imperative language into my functional language. But I don't recommend it. it it's, not, it's not like you would get the kind of functional language you'd be like, uh, functional program you'd be likely to write. So I want to invite people into, into this, uh, this playground of denotational design. Um, if people look into denotational semantics, they're likely to find these two halves, the Strachey and Scott half. And the, the Scott half, denota- the, the domain theory, is very deep. It's, it's pretty hairy. There, there's some serious uh, constructions that require some mathematical maturity. And in almost all cases, it's not necessary to master that material in order to use denotations to design. If you like it, that's awesome. I like it. But you don't need to. You don't, you don't need to get that. Yeah. So maybe it would be good to ground this discussion a bit. Maybe we can talk about the library you wrote for image synthesis, you know, considering images as a function from the Cartesian plane, essentially, things like that. That may help ground this a bit. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Um, so this was back in... Whew, 99 or 2000, something around there. Uh, and I, I had done a bunch of functional record programming and, and investigated a lot of different uh, interesting implementations and, and played with a lot of applications. Uh, and I wanted to play with imagery. 
in a real flexible way. So, uh, so my earlier systems had they had some imagery in them, but they were mostly like read in some bitmap and then apply some spatial transformation to it. Not very interesting. Mm-hmm. I wanted something that was as compositional for imagery as as FRP was for uh, behavior. Yeah, and if you were going by a specification of write a write a function that will flip a bitmap. And you, you didn't think about it notationally, you would probably start with, okay, take all the pixels, put them in an array, but that's not what you came up with. Not at all. No, no. And, and it's because um, I, I was a math major as an undergraduate, um, and, I'm, and I love math, uh, and it really affected the way I think about things. So when I think about what, uh, when, I, when I came to the problem of, of uh, I want to play with imagery, and my motivation for playing with imagery is I like, I like fun pictures, and I'm curious about, about how to express like lots of weird, interesting stuff uh, uh, visually. Um, so, so when I think about what an image is, of course, there's some programming in my head that says rectangular array of 24-bit numbers that can be interpreted as colors and, and so on. But that's not natural, <laughs> And what I mean by that is, is um, that those ideas come from from uh, from technology, right? They come they come from uh, programming libraries that are influenced largely by technology. So when I think of my experience of imagery, right? I have eyes, uh, and my experience of imagery is that well, for one thing, it goes past my periphery. For another, it's not rectangular. I can look around, okay, I have a computer, it's got a rectangular screen, and there's some paintings on the walls and so on. They have rectangular frames, but that's nothing to do with pictures. To me, that has to do with looking through, through shapes at pictures, at imagery. Also, uh, the things in, in my experience of, of imagery don't have pixels. Okay, there is some biology, there is some discretization, but it's not the same kind that we use. And it's also not about the imagery. It's about my perceptive uh, organs, just like the computer has its own perceptive organ, uh, organs that have other peculiarities. So I ask myself, what really is an image that's stripped of accidental complexity due to technology? Oh, and I want to point out, one of my uh, influences or just someone I resonate with is Scott McCloud, who's a cartoonist. Scott McCloud has written a few books. One of the, the first one I read is called Understanding Comics. And it's lovely. It's a graphic novel. It's, it's a comic. And it's about what is the essence of comics. It's exactly the same question that I ask when I do software design. And I won't spoil it. It's lovely. His conclusion is lovely. How he gets there is lovely. But that's the question. What's the essence? And Scott had exactly the same situation that we have, which is comics traditionally have been published in books, at least for the last few hundred years. Before that, they were published on cave walls and so on, right? And those books have, and so we have sequences of frames, and we've got like page 34, turn the page, and so on, right? So Scott looked at that, and he had to fight against this sort of accidental technological baggage and struggle to find out what's the essence. And so that's what I do too. So for imagery, I looked at, and I can say, it's not pixelization, it's not discreteness, that comes from computer representation. It's not uh, rectangular. That also comes from when you arrange things on these computer windows, right? And it's not finite. That also comes from windows. So what's left? Well, what's left is, well, there's color, right? And the color isn't the same everywhere. The color varies over space. And so that's what, to me, an image is. It's the simplest possible precise thing which is colors varying over space. But let's make that precise and succinct, and we'll say it's a function from space to colors. Now, what is space? Infinite two-dimensional uh, Cartesian space. So that's my model. And, and that little bit of reasoning, which you know, uses some intuition and a little bit of mathematical training, not really mathematical training, just having some vocabulary, being able to, to, uh, to uh, access some precise notions like functions and pairs and things like that. That's the most important, by far, step in the whole design process, is just wrestling with the question, what is it? What are these things that I'm uh, going to be manipulating? And so that gives us our model. And now we look at what are the kinds of operations I want to do? What are, the built, what, what are ways that I want to create uh, images, create some from scratch and transform existing ones? And then the game is, every one of those operations, I have to be able to explain precisely in terms of my model. 
So if any of these explanations talk about, we'll march across the pixels, is stop right there. There are no pixels in the model. I have to go back. So it sounds like the steps that you you take when you want to define what this thing means that you're working on are first you you search for some intuitive definition that speaks to you about simplicity or elegance. Then you find some way to express that in the type system. And then you check to see if all of the behaviors that you want fit that model. Yeah, exactly. All the building blocks, if they're explainable in terms of the model. And when they're not, it's very interesting. So, so this technique is not just valuable for when it, it works out happily and easily. It's, it's maybe even more valuable for when it's problematic. Uh, so if I have some operation that I cannot explain in terms of my model, well, there are a few possibilities. What does this mean? So one possibility is that, that there's, there's something simpler there's some simpler uh, notion that I can explain. And that simpler motion, notion is actually more powerful. It's more flexible. So simplicity is the game. So I would say there, I always have th- uh, three goals when I do software design. It has to be precise, uh, <laughs> okay. it has to be precise, uh, simple, and adequate. Okay, precise, simple, and adequate. So precision is not, a, is not an end to itself. Precision is just so that I know that I'm not talking nonsense when I'm doing the simple and adequate part. Uh, so that I really know what it means. Otherwise, the simplicity and adequacy could be an illusion. And usually in software design, they are an illusion. Once you, once you say it's something real precisely, then it's, oh, it turns out that, well, I wasn't quite sure, but I wasn't quite right about that. That's really important feedback. Yeah, I think this speaks to an intuition a lot of um, software engineers have that if it seems like they're having to add complexity on top of complexity to explain the problem they're trying to solve, they're going in the wrong direction. And there's got to be a simpler model that they're missing somehow. And this seems like a great tool to, to suss that out. That's exactly what it is. It, it, it's the simplest, clearest um, tool I have to give me feedback on how well my design is going. And so by making it precise, I get to really see the complexity. I don't get to pretend that it's not there. I don't get to fool myself that it's not there. And, and when I add things, it's like, oh, I'll put in this extra feature. Well, this extra feature doesn't fit my model. That's okay. I'll make my model more complicated. No, it's really not okay. Because the, the simplicity or complexity of the model, I think, is, is the most, um, it, it, it's the like high order bit in how easy the software will be to uh, understand well enough to use reliably. How, how much flexibility I have and how to implement it. It has to be simple and precise so that I, I can explore all these things. I really know what I'm talking about and so on. And none of that is available without the precision. Let's change track here and ask you about uh, if you can talk about any of the work that you're doing sort of compiling Haskell down to execute on FPGA. Oh, good heavens. <clears throat> of course, I completely forgot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I'd be happy to do that. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm working for a company called Tabula in, in Silicon Valley. Tabula makes this a wonderfully innovative uh, computational hardware. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a really cool architecture for massively parallel computation. Um, the, the, the kind of closest thing that's well known is FPGAs, but it's much more flexible than an FPGA. So FPGA, a field programmable gate array, it's, it's, it's like uh, reconfigurable hardware. So it's hardware that, em- that emulates hardware, so it's, it is physically massively parallel. You really do the computation massively parallel. It's a little slower and more expensive because, uh, because rather than having fixed uh, logic gates, you have these more flexible uh, objects, which are lookup tables, that, that can be zzzed, uh, specialized into these operations. So what we're doing at Tabula, I mean, uh, one of the things we're doing is looking at how to compile pure functional programming. Uh, and why are we doing that? Well, because... because uh, Functional programming languages, so imperative programming languages are intrinsically deeply sequential things. We can throw threads in there as a kind of coping mechanism, and we get something even more monstrous. We get something that way we can have some simultaneity, not simultaneity, we can have some concurrence, some interleaving, really, uh, with, with uh, non-deterministic semantics, terribly hard to debug, Heisenbugs, all that kind of thing. Uh, so it, so it, it's this kind of deeply sequential model. Whereas functional programs are not deeply, they're not sequential functional programming languages. They're not parallel either because they're not about order. They're not about doing. They're about being. Functional programming languages are about being, not about doing. Imperative programming languages are about doing rather than about being. It's doing that requires the notion of sequencing because doing causes modifications and the reason we care in what order operations are carried out is because they access 
in an implicit way some store, some state. Functional programs, we don't do that. So we have so functional programming as an approach is a non-sequential approach. We have some radically non-sequential hardware, and we just hope that these two are a good match. And that's why I'm working on what I'm uh, doing, which is compiling Haskell to these uh, massively parallel execution. There's some uh, articles in my blog. Um, I'm taking uh, an approach. It's it's a, a lovely result that says that you can take the type lambda calculus and uh, convert it into a fairly small algebraic vocabulary. By algebraic, I mean there, there's no lambda in it. There's just these operators, um, and there are about 11 of them. Uh, and, and so you can, you can systematically translate type lambda calculus into this little uh, algebra of functions. Uh, and then that algebra of functions, each one of them comes with laws. And if we know for a, and then, then the question is, how do we want to interpret these functions? We can interpret them as functions, and we're back to where we started, just like running on the CPU, that kind of thing. We can interpret them as circuits instead. And really a lot of other very interesting interpretations besides circuits. And so that's the approach that I'm taking is to, is uh, I use GHC to, to turn the full Haskell language into core, that's what GHC provides. And then, uh, and then I turn the core into this, uh, this little algebraic vocabulary, which is called CCCs, Cartesian Closed Categories, uh, the, 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 the vocabulary. Uh, and then I give an interpretation of those 11 building blocks, plus primitives, you know, plus times, cosine, that sort of thing. Well, we, we, uh, we usually like to ask um, uh, for more information on anything that we've talked about, maybe starting points for learning to think about uh, denotational design and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as far as like getting started in, in denotative uh, design, denotational design, um, I, have a, I have a talk that's on the web. Um, it was from Bayhack, which is a Bay Area, uh, Haskell, uh, gathering back in May. Uh, I think it's called Denotational Design from Meanings to Programs. Um, I gave another version in Chicago in July. Um, I don't think the, vi- the video for that is out yet. I hope it didn't get lost. I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, there's some slides. Um, and in the slides, which you can find on GitHub as well, um, and in the slides there are also pointers to some, uh, some papers. There's one paper called Denotational Design with Type Class Morphisms. Maybe a little bit of an intimidating title. But that, that's, that, that's the one paper that really focuses on the methodology. You've been listening to the Haskell Cast, Episode 9, with guest Connell Elliott, recorded on November 16, 2014. For links and notes from the show, visit www.haskellcast.com. <laughs>